Welcome to Jewelry Artists, where we examine the art and business of making jewelry. Join me for an intriguing conversation with jewelry artists who will inform and inspire you. I'm Katie Hacker, your host. My guest today is Francesca Watson. She's a designer, a maker, and an instructor, and she and her husband, Nick, have the makery in Bulverde, Texas. Today, we're going to talk about Francesca's transition from life on the road to life in the studio and how she holds online classes and tips for if you're taking online classes. Hi, Francesca. I'm so glad you're here. Hey, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm glad that you could take time out of your busy schedule. It sounds like you're hopping. We are hopping. We are hopping and pivoting and, I don't know, insert other dance moves here. That's Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes graceful. Looks graceful from here, but I'm sure Mm. it doesn't always feel that way. Nope. Graceful is not, I would not say that that's a word people use around me a whole lot, but we're doing the best we can. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Well, tell us a little bit about what you've got cooking with the makery. Well, we are um, a working and teaching studio located in a very sweet little um, town in the Texas Hill Country. We are part of a community of mostly women-owned businesses, which is very cool. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and um, our our studio is located in a hundred-year-old German nine-pin bowling alley. Um, I love that so much. Yeah, it's this sort of wacky, wonky, creaky, <laughs> hundred-year-old building with uneven floors. Um, and our our goal really is to just create a place of community where people can come and be creative. And I share the space with my husband, and it's. Um, really sort of the other place we live. Um, We spend a lot of time there um, together quite happily, which I think people find surprising. Mm -hmm. You're not the first person to say that, you know, other couples in the jewelry industry work together too. And I think people outside looking in think, Oh, how could you do that? But right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We actually really like each other a lot. He's a painter. um, So his discipline is different than mine. And I think that that helps, you know, the, great pleasure is that we get to go in and spend days together and be creative. And, um, you know, we kind of don't infringe on each other's territory. So we still have kind of our own, um, our own place in the world. Um, mutually supportive. Well, it's nice to be with somebody who understands. He's amazing. How did you decide to take the leap into a, into a space like that? So it was not a straight line kind of a thing. I, um, got into jewelry making sort of by by accident and and then really got bit hard and fell in love with it. And I wound up teaching for um, a woman who owned a studio and subsequently became a business partner. And then that didn't end well. And um, so as all of that was kind of coming apart, my husband had retired from his job and was painting in a spare bedroom of the house we had moved into as sort of our retirement home. And he didn't really have enough space. And um, there was this opportunity to sort of negotiate um, as part of the the business divorce, um, you know, what was going to happen to the space. And, and Nick and I just sort of decided that it would be fun. <laughs> I don't know that we really understood. <laughs> Best we laid plans. <laughs> um, and, and so it's sort of, you know, it sort of morphed from there. We we had an idea of what we wanted for the space um, in, in terms of what we wanted the business to be about. And I think we've mostly 
been successful with that, but it it's really sort of started out by accident. Um, and now it's turned into this thing that is uh, a passion. I'll say, and you do beautiful work too. I should mention, I think your jewelry is really creative and oh, interesting. You. And it's so fascinating to me when people are taking this model of I'm a maker to mm-hmm. I'm a teacher to mm-hmm. now I'm a retailer. You know, there are all these different hats that you wear at any given time. Yeah. Well, I think that's true for lots of people who are in the maker community. We wear all the hats. We do all of the things. Um, right. And sometimes that's good. Um, sometimes it's not good. <laughs> Whatever the opposite <laughs> of good is. Sometimes it's frustrating. And I wish I could spend, you know, less time on the admin stuff and more time on the creating stuff. And um yeah, I, I will say that it's a way of life I hope never to have to give up. It's, you know, um, incredibly satisfying. Oh, man, that's the highest compliment that you could give any career. Yep. Yeah. That you want to do it forever. Yep. Well, I came to it very late. So I'm, I thank you for the compliment about my work. I always feel a little bit behind the curve. You know, I didn't I didn't come to jewelry making until I was well into my 40s. Um, and so I always feel a little bit like I'm catching up, you know, I wish I had found it 20 years earlier so that I could go get a degree or, um, I don't know, maybe take it, I'll put it, I'll put this in quotes more seriously. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry for laughing. <laughs> no, I but I think, mean. yeah, we I all, you mean. yeah. I, and I think for many of my students, that's the case too. You know, they, they, I've gotten to the point where they've raised their kids or they've had their career or they're thinking about retirement and um, very much wanting to tap into that creative part of themselves. And, you know, so I, I encounter a lot of people now who are in the same place I was then. And um, so. Um, so can you talk them down off the ledge? You know, here's the thing I have. Uh, I sort of have. I, my goal is not to talk them off the ledge. My, my, my goal is to talk them into jumping, jump, jump off. Oh. The ledge. <laughs> Do it. Um, Do it. I'm, I'm sort of uh, an unapologetic enabler. I think people really were cr- creative to be creative. And um, I was sort of view it as a challenge when somebody says, Oh, I'm not creative. I could never do that. Give me a day, give me a day. And i I can get the light bulb to go on for you. And that's kind of the thing. I feel a little bit like an evangelist in that way. <laughs> like, yeah, well, like, I agree. It's so exciting to see someone really hook into it, you know? Yeah. And when that off. light bulb goes on. Yeah. I, and I, you know, women who, who come in, they're scared of the torch. Um, they're not sure that they can do it or they've spent, you know, years trying to solder and, and have been unsuccessful and they get to the end of a day and they've made a thing and, you know, their eyes fill up with tears or their face lights up or uh, there's just nothing better than that moment. I agree. That is the glory time of teaching. Yep. It sure is. For sure. So do you find yourself with very much time at the bench? Not as much as you would like, probably. It's, it is the thing that falls to the bottom of the to-do list all the time. And, and, you know, if I, I don't know. Like I said, I'm always coming. I always feel like I'm coming up behind the curve a little bit. If I if I could organize things a little bit differently, um, that would take a higher priority. Um, never enough hours in the day. So true. I think, yeah. and I think the business of the business of the business is so important. You can't let yeah. it slip. Sometimes yeah. it's easy to let the other parts 
Yeah. Slip a little more. Yeah, but it's I'm a sure kind of, you have some. It's a kind of discipline you have to think about. You have to sort of require yourself to think about the creative piece of that. Um, I think we have a tendency to think that being creative is this sort of woo-woo thing that just lands on your shoulder and, you know, the muse and 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 blah blah. And I just don't subscribe to that. I think being creative is is a practice, like many other disciplines. And so I really have to require myself to spend the time. Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I feel like you're right. It doesn't just come out of the sky to you mm-hmm. unless you're ready and waiting and, yep. you know, working on your skills and mm-hmm. you have to show classes up. or whatever it is. Yeah. You have to be there ready for it. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Are you moving now? Most of your classes online. Yeah, we are. I don't know when this podcast is going to be broadcast, but at the time we're talking, we're right in the middle of this, you know, shutdown and um, trying to make decisions about how we continue to support the community and, um, you know, seeing people on Instagram, you know, they're talking about whether they're taking this opportunity to learn to bake bread and they're gardening and they're weaving things. And I'm like, dang, I'm, I'm getting up <laughs> earlier in the morning and working harder. I, it's, it's mostly the same stuff, but it's just in a different um, framework, I guess. You know, we, um, we started teaching online, uh, I guess, four years ago, three years ago, something like that. And so we had done a lot of the technical work and and sort of figuring out what platforms look like and all of that. And and when all of this happened and I was watching how people were struggling and how discouraged people were and sad and scared. And um I created a Facebook group and said, come on, let's just make stuff. And that has grown into a group of as of right now, over 1,500 people. That's amazing. Two to three projects a month. I'm doing, I've launched a, an online show, I guess is what I'm calling it. I don't know. It makes me laugh. It's, you know, Facebook lives on our business page uh, several times a week. And I'm, oh, you know, yeah. I've just started having guest stars and, and it makes me laugh because it just was all unplanned. It was just kind of a reaction to the emotion I was seeing, the need, a need I was seeing from people. Um, well, and you're perfectly situated for answering it you know it's something that you already were doing yeah so yeah um and I will say that it's benefited us in that it's um you know it's trial by fire so I had not done as much live stuff as I um had wanted to so this was sort of you know talk about jumping off the jumping off the ledge right you kind of jump in feet first um, and in fact, I was just looking at some of our older projects, the cameras were all messed up and, you know, whatever. And so, you know, we've improved the product. Um, and so that's good. And I feel good about helping people where, you know, meeting people where they are and helping them to kind of tap into that creative part of themselves. Um, that's very gratifying. Yeah, I could see how that would be. You're kind of finding a similar feeling of when people come in. And have exactly. the aha moment right there in your workshop, whereas now yeah. they're having it at home, but you're still a part of that. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I could see how that would be exciting and kind of keep it, keep it fresh too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been 
personal, you know, I, it, personal in a way that teaching in person um, sometimes isn't. And I know that that seems counterintuitive, but. You oh, know, tell the, me more the, about that. Well, the, t- the, the constraints of teaching, right? You've got time limits. You start at a certain time, you end at a certain time. If you're working for one of these big venues, like, you know, like Bead and Button, everybody's on a schedule. You got to be done by a certain time because all of your students are leaving to move on to their next thing. And, and, you know, when you've got 20 people in the room and you're pushing hard to get them finished with a project, you can't really engage with them personally. There, there isn't space to do that. And There's I'm no a, time. I'm a, I just believe so passionately about what this process unlocks for people personally that, you know, I always want to kind of dig a little deeper with people and there's never time to do that in, in those big venues, in those, in those kind of more structured uh, environments. And so one of the enormously freeing things about doing this is that I get to say, Hey, today we're just going to work for four hours. And, and if we go over, we go over. And if we don't get finished, we'll come back tomorrow and, you know, everything's recorded. So if you can't make it, you know, check in with us later. And it's been a, I don't know, maybe it's indulgent. I don't know. I don't want to put a negative spin on it, but it's been, it has felt very freeing. Um, And I think, you know, the, the relationships I'm building is kind of a surprise to me. I think I was not expecting that. Um, Is it through the people's ability to comment or to send you messages? You know, are you, do you think that the more personal aspect is because they feel more, you have more of a space for answering their questions outside of the video itself or the presentation. I think that that might, that might be part of it. I think the other part of it is that, you know, this is all happening in a crucible where we're all kind of under fire right now. (laughs) Right. And so everybody's feeling kind of emotional and raw. The number of women in this group who are living alone, who've lost a spouse or partner um, and who are completely isolated because they can't go anywhere or do anything. I mean, I get messages from women saying, I look forward to one o'clock during the week because I know you're going to come on. And and I just look forward to hearing your voice, which just Aww, that's so nice. breaks my heart. Right. Um, so so part of it, I think, is that that we're all kind of in a in a pseudo isolation. Um, and this is responding to that. But I also think we always did, a, I think, a very good job at the makery of really making our workshops an event and and making them personal and making it about making personal connections with people and relations developing relationships and that has translated beautifully to this to this group um it is i mean we've all been part of facebook groups where you know it's nothing but drama and politics and blah right. um this has been none of that this has been people who have done an extraordinary job of self policing of helping one another of um you know we did a we did a journal project recently that involved um a leather cover and uh, tandy was closed <laughs> right <laughs> we couldn't get leather one of the ladies in our group said i happen to have she was on a leather kick a few years ago she said i have three hides in my garage and anybody oh wants some send me a message and I'll send it to you for free. All you have to do is make a donation to the makery. It was the most, I'd never seen anything like it. That's so nice. It was just, it was just been kind of those sorts of stories over and over and over again for three months. So 
Yeah, I just don't, I don't know where that comes from or why that happens. I'm just profoundly grateful for it. Well, Um, I think a lot of it, I mean, if I get to observe on that, I would say a lot of it is that you're opening your heart to people. So they're responding in kind. Well, I, I'd like to think that that's part of it. I try very hard to, to live my life in a way that's very integrated. So, um, I mean, I am what I am and I just kind of put that out there (laughs) and, (laughs) um, and for good or bad, that just is kind of, uh, what it is. I have been very moved by the way people have responded to how we've handled this. Um, and hearing from people about what the makery has meant to them over the last, you know, three or four years has been incredibly gratifying. Cause I think when you're in it, you don't, when you're doing the work and you're working hard and you're, it's the business of the business as you will. Um, I think you don't always see the impact you're having. Um, so that's been, that's been a lovely side benefit of all of this is that people have felt compelled to come forward and say, you have to survive this because the makery means so much to me. Um, so, well, it's pretty beautiful that people are sharing those, um, you know, their, their thoughts with you like that and that they feel welcome to. And it seems like you have a lot of silver linings for this really tough circumstances that we're all going through right now. Yep. It's been a, in an odd way, it's been a real blessing. So, um, yeah, so I'm grateful. Do you think that I'm sure that you're in it right now, you know, mostly in it, not looking forward too much, at least that's how I feel like I'm trying to do. Yeah. But do you feel like when you get back to the studio or you go back on the road or, you know, whatever those things are that you used to do, or Mm -hmm. do you think about how what you're doing now is going to impact that? Um, like you said, I'm trying not to think too far ahead because I, you know, when, when this first started, uh, we thought, well, we'll close for two weeks because that's what everybody was asked to do. Shut down for two weeks. Um, at this point, I just feel like we can't really plan anything. So I'm trying, um, to see this as an exercise in being very present in the moment. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Just not look forward too far. Um, you know, as a studio owner at this point in the year, I would have have had in prior years, I would have had all of the following year already booked guest instructors, you know, uh, under contract. I have nothing scheduled or planned for 2021 because nobody wants to have that conversation right now. Well, you so we can't. Yeah. So you so I, I think the honest answer to the question is that I I'm really trying as a matter of discipline not to think too far ahead because if I do, I start to get anxious. I'm a little bit of a control freak and um, definitely a planner. Um, I, I have a strong organizational gene. Um, and you. so ugh, everything that's happening right now makes me want to scream <laughs> inside my head. That sound, <laughs> that sound you're hearing is me screaming internally. So um the fact that I can't plan any of it um, right now is I just have to sort of, as a matter of discipline, I just don't think about it very much. So I don't know what it's going to look like. I really truly don't know. I know that um, we went back and forth for the first two months of this, trying to decide if maybe this was a sign that we were supposed to 
close the studio. Maybe we're just supposed to be done with this. Um, and we are 1000% committed to seeing it survive in some form on the other side of this. Um, so, you know, that's about where we've taken it in terms of planning. We'll be here. We'll be doing something, um, what that's going to look like. You know, I'm hearing from guest instructors. They don't really want to travel. They just don't want to do it right now. So, um, yeah, there are so many unknowns. Yeah. You know, I understand. Yep. What's it like for you to be off the road? I'm actually really liking it. Um, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, you know, being on the road is is both wonderful and a grind, right? I love the energy. Well, you know, right? You go to Tucson and you get to see all your friends and you hang out and it's a big party for two weeks and and it's wonderful, but planning for it and packing for it and hauling all the gear and, you know, it takes a month to recover when you get home because I don't know about you, you're a young whippersnapper, but those nah. of us who are... Those of us who are closing in on 60 find that a little bit harder to recover from. Um, So it's great to see people, but the work that goes into being on the road is a lot. Um, Yeah, I always feel like it's so much prep to get ready. And mm -hmm. it is really amazing while you're out. Mm -hmm. And then I come home and completely collapse. So it's like, I used to think of it as I had a little picture in my office of a greyhound because, you know, they run, run, run. Then they just Mm -hmm. lay down and can't move. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) just it's exhausting. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, the other thing is that when I teach on the road, I bring literally my entire studio. Like I've packed the whole thing into I have to rent a van and, um, you know, my. I don't know if you call it a mission, but my. I I don't know what the word is, but when I go to teach, I want to have all of the things there. I don't want students to be worried about whether they have the right thing. I don't want them to have to have spent the money on the tools. They they don't even know if they like what I'm going to show them yet. So, you know, let's, let's do the thing first. Um, But that requires bringing a lot of stuff. And that means when I get home, then I can't find anything for two weeks. because Yeah. So, um, so there's that. Guilty. Yeah, there's that. Uh, I like that you got yours unpacked within two weeks, though, because, you know, mine's well, in the box for a long time. Well, because we operate a teaching studio and we have guest instructors in all the time, I don't have the. You need your stuff. I, I don't. I need my stuff because, you know, people are going to come and use it. So do you think that's the challenge for teaching online where I'm the same way? I always liked to bring everything for my students. Um, but teaching online, do you issue the sort of the materials list ahead of time so that they can get what they need? Or are you purposeful, purposely uh, designing projects that are made with things that, you know, they'll have on hand? Or that's both? a good question. And I wish I could say that I had you know, that I was organized enough to have thought all of that through. Uh, For a lot of the early projects, it was really just me getting online and and showing them some stuff. Um, And then we dealt with the tools and things later. Mm -hmm. Um, I've only just now finally gotten to the point where it's like, okay, well, here's the next three projects we're going to do. And here are the materials and tools lists and trying to pick things. um, You know, one of the projects we're going to do involves role printed metal. And not every student is going to have access to a rolling mill. So I, you know, reached out to my friend Gwen Youngblood and said, hey, could you provide 
patterned metal for students who may not have a rolling mill. So trying to sort of find those other um, resources. Yeah, um, and I'm sure Gwen was happy that you could refer students to her and help her out that way. Yeah, well, but and I think that that's, you know, that's going to be the challenge moving forward for everybody teaching online, you know, is how do you teach the things you want to teach um, if you're speaking to students who may not have access to a fully equipped studio. So I'm actually in a conversation now with, you know, I'm part of a group of 170 instructors that are working together to try to navigate that right now. Um, oh, you're so lucky to have each other that way. And if I yeah. know what other people are doing, I know some studios do um, borrow boxes, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't make sense to ship something like that. I don't think it starts to get expensive. Um, you know, one of the things that we're talking about in this group is, you know, could, you know, if we had uh, an instructor on the other side of the country who had students in my area who were learning from them online, could we make our studio available to them? In, oh, wow. in some way. So we're exploring ways. It's it's actually proving to be a very interesting conversation. Um, um, and we're we're in the middle right now of doing a worldwide survey of metal arts instructors and, and programs to tr- kind of try to find out what resources are available, what problems are people bouncing up against, how could we collaborate. Um, we're trying to find ways, all of us, I think, of navigating these changes in ways that will be productive for the, for the industry. So, well, I think in a lot of ways it has the potential for revitalizing what people were already doing, you know, I don't think we have to look at it as a stopgap. I mean, I think this could be the future and then the other parts are more supportive. I mean, I think the move to online education was already in progress. Um, I think this has just accelerated, um, you know, the, the process for some people and, um, institutions. I know that, you know, institutions, we all tend to get a little sclerotic, right. We just sort of <laughs> in our, in our little places. And that's true for all of us, even as artists or teachers or, um, and so this kind of breaks those frameworks and says, well, you have to look at this a different, a different way. And I actually think that that's useful when it happens. It's unfortunate that it's happening in a way that, you know, is so destructive in other ways. That's, you know, uh, that's hard. But I think at the end of the day, this is going to be a good thing for our industry. I think it's going to be revitalizing. I know I'm very excited by the conversations that are happening and the and the potential collaborations that are happening. I just, I'm very energized by that. Um, so we'll, you know, a year from now, we may all look back at this and say, hey, this this was hard in the moment, but we're seeing some fruit from this that's going to be good for us in the long term. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, people used to throw around the word, word disruptive a lot, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's gone kind of negative right now. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. but I think this could be considered one of those disruptors that actually does, like you say, bear fruit. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think in in any I mean, I I hesitate to get too philosophical, but I think, you know, disruptions are what we make of them. If we if we hold so tightly to the stuff that we knew because we knew it, um, we miss the opportunity to engage in things that may wind up being enormously beneficial to us in the long term. That's, I think, true of most kinds of growth. Growth is often painful. I think about, you know, when my kid was little and 
her bones were growing and she went through pain and, you know, the, uh, a crappy analogy, I'm sure. But, you know, the idea is that growth is growth is painful, but what's on the other side of it is often lovely. And so, Better, yeah, if you can, we have to if you can hang in it. there, if we can yeah. hang in there and if you can choose, make the choice to look f- for the good stuff. Um, I think we're better served in the long term. So I'm hopeful. I will say that. Um, I have days where I'm weary because, uh, you know, it's an emotional weight. I know we're all carrying that. It's an emotional and, and, and psychological weight that we're all carrying. But I, I would say sifting through all the chaff at the at the core of it, I'm I'm hopeful. Well, I think that one of the things that that helps is all of this communal collaborative type of work that you're doing. You know, you're not holding up in your studio. Mm-hmm. You're really reaching out and bringing people mm-hmm. along. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you had a piece with Robert Lopez, a collaborative piece that you worked together on. What yeah. was that like? Gosh, I love him. That's so great. I met I met Robert in uh, the spring of 2017, actually at Beadfest uh, Santa Fe. And I had been following his work on Instagram. Um, unbeknownst to me, he'd been following me. Um, I had lost my brother very unexpectedly uh, the previous summer. And oh, I'm sorry. I, I, thank you. It was, you know, I was on my way to Beadfest Philadelphia to teach when I got the call. It was mm. just really awful. It's and, never a good time, but that's a really terrible time. Yeah. And he was overseas when it happened. And so I, you know, there wasn't anything for me to do. I went ahead and taught the week. Um, oh my gosh. But it was, yeah. It was just a really, um, and I had such wonderful friends who rallied around me that week. You know, we didn't make a big deal about it. We didn't tell anybody, but, um, you know, we just went on about our, about our business, but it was a pretty grueling. A month, a month later, I got a cancer diagnosis. 2016 kind of sucked. Oh, Francesca. <laughs> oh, 2016 was really hard. 2016 was really, really tough. So I met Robert the following spring and I, he and I laugh uh, about the fact that uh, when we met, we just kind of had this instant kind of sibling sort of crush on each other. It was this instant sort of recognition. Um, And I will just never forget. We had this amazing dinner. It was um, Robert Lopez and Jeff Fulkerson and Tammy Jones and Gwen Youngblood. And uh, there were just all of these people Rock around stars, the table. Yeah. It was just this sort of surreal. It, Danny Wade showed up, you know, it was just like this weird sort of, how does this even happen thing? Um, we laughed so hard and I just felt this sort of sibling love for him, which thankfully was not weird at all and was completely reciprocated. And he and his wife have, have since become very dear friends of ours. We see them at least a couple of times a year. They, they come and stay in our home. And uh, yeah, so he's just this person that I am so incredibly fond of. And I think he's one of the most talented, creative, unique artists I've ever met. Um, and so a couple of years ago, he said he was coming to teach in our studio and he said, I would just love for us to have some playtime. You know, the, the, the problem when you're sort of on a full schedule and you're teaching is that you're just going all the time and you don't get a lot of time. You're always thinking about, you know, can I, can I make this thing and and turn it into a class or can I make this thing? Is it going to sell? Um, and he said, I would just really love to have some time with you in your studio to um, 
just make. So that first one um, was sort of a, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. It was just this wish that we had to spend some creative time. And about three weeks before he came, um, Holly Gage, her husband, Chris, and her son, Ryan, were in a food truck explosion. And Robert and I just agreed without even talking about it, that whatever we made, we were going to auction off. Like we both sort of arrived at this moment without even talking about it. So when he brought it up to me, I was like, I can't believe you even said that because that was exactly what I was thinking. So we made this first piece and we auctioned it off and we raised money for um, for their medical expenses. And so we just decided we were going to make this an annual thing. We were like, man, that felt so good. And the piece we made was so satisfying. And And then to have it be a good thing for the community on top of it just felt like icing on the cake. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of how the whole, that's cool. Sorry. That's how that started. No, 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 that's okay. Um, I do a lot of work with beats of courage and I feel the same. It's, um, yeah, it's really a happy thing to get to contribute to a cause that is kind of hard to hear about sometimes. Yeah, it is. And uh, yeah. So uh, Beads of Courage, by the way, can I just say I'm just really very impressed by that whole organization and the work you do for it. It's a it's oh. a big thing. So um, thanks for being a leader in that part of the world, that part of thanks. the industry. It's really nice. Thank you. It's easy to um, give your time when it's something you really believe in, you know? Yeah, it is. Yeah. What do you think are some other ways that people could use their art for a cause? Hmm. Well, I'll tell you that there, I've been I've been approached a number of times by um, school systems or nonprofit organizations who want to do stuff with um, underprivileged kids, and I am really not often able to to do it as much as I would like. Um, and I would say that you know if you're if you're looking for ways to improve the world, starting with showing kids that that they can make things, that they can do things, empowering them in a, in very um, practical, concrete ways. Um, and it doesn't even have to be complicated, you know, string some beads or show them how to bend wire or um, I think working with, working with kids is a, they're our future, you know? So, and there are, unfortunately, art programs are going the way of the dodo in the school system, which makes me so sad. Um, so I would say use your art to, to teach kids, to teach others. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, that's a good one. I like your idea for auction, working on an auction piece too, and using it to raise money for something that you believe in. I think it puts extra significance behind your work. Yeah. Well, this past year, it was really funny because the, the piece that Robert and I did, um, this past year, we had decided that the organization we were going to support, <clears throat> it's a program for Vietnam era, uh, catastrophically injured Vietnam era veterans. And that is a um, segment of the veteran population that is badly underserved. My husband uh, served in Vietnam. He's highly decorated. He hates when I say that, but he's a, he's the real deal. Oh, thanks um, for his service. And Thank yeah, he's a, uh, He's a very special, really humble guy. And Robert 
just adores him. And so we decided that we were going to um, auction off our piece um, to benefit that program. And we were going to make the donation in Nick's honor. It was we didn't we knew that going in and it wasn't until we actually got the piece finished that we realized we had sort of almost unconsciously picked all of these shapes that were shield oriented very much sort of a warrior theme which had was not at all intentional when we went into it so it was a lesson for me in how kind of what what's in your head comes through your hands, even if you are not conscious of it, right? But both of us had arrived at these shapes and these ideas um, kind of unconsciously informed by the emotion behind what we were doing. Was It was a very interesting realization. Yeah, interesting how it even affects the design itself, like you said. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to let you go without asking you for some tips for people who are taking online classes. What would you recommend for them to be prepared? Um, I think it depends on the the platform, but uh, these tips, I would say, I'm going to assume that there will be some opportunity for you to rewatch the online stuff. That seems to be the standard right now that you know, there's a live component or a pre-recorded component or some combination of the two, and then you will have access to those later. So I would say sort of dial back your um, performance anxiety, if you will, as an as a student. Um, you can go back and rewatch. You can um, you can try again. Um, and I would say. One aspect of the online stuff that I think is a problem is the distractions, right? Close all your other browsers, only have the thing open that you're watching. Don't try to, you know, Facebook message your friends at the same time. Um, focus, get yourself into a place where you can you can kind of focus. And then help the instructor out by staying on topic. This happens all the time. I'll be talking about, you know, soldering and somebody will start asking me questions about rolling mills. It's sort of not the topic. Um, today. Um, so do, do your best to stay on topic and, and to stick to things that are relevant to what what's happening in the moment. That said, don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, one of the hardest things about teaching online is that you don't really have that immediate feedback that uh, from the students in the moment. Um, so if you didn't understand something the instructor said, you're probably not alone. Speak up and say, hey, I didn't get that or um, I need a little clarification there. Um, yeah, from an instructor's standpoint, just logistically, how do you manage teaching the class and taking the questions? Do you have someone there who reads you the questions, or I don't. I'm I'm a one work? man band. I, yeah. I do that. I feel I I laugh. I, it's like that guy who used to stand out. I grew up in New York <laughs> City, and there literally was a guy who used to stand out on street corners, and he had like symbols between his knees, and he had the little dry. That's really literally. You know, I do all the things. So I have a big monitor that sits opposite my workstation and I can see the questions coming in as I work. Um, And, you know, sometimes I have to go back and re-scroll through, but I find that people are really pretty patient about that. Um, Yeah, so I just, I don't know. I've become sort of accustomed to it. I'm not in the least bit intimidated by the tech um, and I have it set up 
so that I can kind of do all of the things at one time myself. So. That's good. I think it's, it takes a lot of focus on your part too, to be able to, to balance everything, but it sounds like you've, you've got it down. Well, you do have to be really (laughs) present. You know, I will tell you this, this is my, like I said, my husband and I share the space. And so every once in a while, he'll get a wild hair, like while I'm teaching and he'll decide now is the moment he's got to go water all the plants. (laughs) Our our building is literally 100 years old. And so if he walks by my workstation, the cameras shake. The floor is so unstable. So I'll be like, really? Now you've decided you have to do that? Um, But as I said, I think people are pretty. pretty, It's life. It's life. And I think people are pretty accommodating. You know, it's it's real life. This is really my studio. It's really where I work. My bench is really this messy. (laughs) Um, So... (laughs) Yeah. On every episode, I ask our guests to tell us about their favorite stone. Do you have a favorite? I have. I um, I have more than one favorite. Um, <laughs> surprise, surprise. I have more than one favorite. I am very drawn to turquoise, and I um, I don't know. I couldn't tell you why. There's just something about it that I find. Me too. Very, I love it. appealing. Um, I found a new vendor in Tucson this year and I spent absurd amounts of money. Um, um, So yeah, I would say turquoise. I stop at the Kingman mine every year on my way back from Las Vegas. I, um, um, Josh Colbaugh um, sees me coming and starts laughing because he knows (laughs) I just go bananas. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great spot. It is a great spot. You can go in the back room and they'll set you up with a table and they'll just bring you literally buckets of stuff. And, uh, you know, four hours later, you know, you're just, you're covered in dirt and it's, but you're just, it just feels, I love that. It's magical. Um, It is magical. So I would say turquoise is up there. I'm a huge fan of, um, of sapphires. It's my birthstone. So Rose cut sapphires are kind of a thing. And I, I have a current love affair with Vesuvianite. And it is a shade of goldish green. There's something about that shade of green that just pretty. Yeah. Are you familiar with the works of Gustav Klimt? Yes. At all? So he there's a shade of green in his work that is very specific. And Vesuvianite is that shade of green. It's just unbelievably beautiful um so pretty i'm looking at it right now yeah it's just ridiculously beautiful so i would say those are my can i have three those are three you can have as many as you want francesca (laughs) (laughs) well thanks for introducing me to a new stone that's really beautiful and i do love the works of klimt so hey well, you should check out one of the ongoing sort of lengthy, it got out of hand projects that we're working on in the group is a Klimt inspired piece. And that's been, that's been kind of fun as a design exercise. Um, and that's got a ton of Vesuvianite in it. So we'll see how that turns out. Oh, I can't wait to see. Well, yeah. thank you so much for being with me today. This is really fun to chat with you and catch up on what you're doing with the Makery and everything else. It was fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. To see pictures, please check out our show notes, interweave.com slash jewelry dash artist dash podcast. Jewelry Artist is hosted and produced by me, Katie Hacker. 
We had help from Tamara Hahnemann and Merle White, a special thanks to the team at Lapidary Journal Jewelry Artist Magazine. Jewelry Artist is an interweave podcast and produced by Golden Peak Media. Our podcast producer is Matthew Talisfor. Tammy Jones is our web editor and Jesse Rodriguez does our marketing. Our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer.